Philippians 4. We are entering the last chapter of Philippians. Uh, this is now the, the final quarter of this book, but there is, there's so much here. This is a beautiful chapter uh, talking about spiritual stability, talking about the peace of God, proper thinking, contentment, generosity. All of these topics are unfolded in this chapter, and so there's, there's a lot to cover. We'll probably still be yet a month and a half or so kind of finishing up this, this study of Philippians, uh, but there's, there's a lot here. So let's read the first four verses, and we will kind of tackle these phrase by phrase this morning. Philippians 4, verse number 1. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Iodias and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. There are, inside of these four verses, there are three key phrases that begin with a predicate and end with a prepositional phrase. So those three key phrases are in verse number one, you would find the verb, stand fast, and then the phrase, in the Lord. Verse number two, you would find, be of the same mind, and then the phrase, in the Lord. Then in verse number four, rejoice in the Lord. And what's interesting about all three of these phrases that really take up the, the real emphasis and push and thrust of this passage is that all three of these are reverberations. Paul has already said all three of these in the preceding chapters of Philippians. He's already told them to stand fast in the Lord and to be of the same mind in the Lord and to rejoice in the Lord. So these, in, in a roundabout way, are echoes now coming back to us and sentiments that Paul wants to revisit. So this morning we are going to do just that. I will not be redundant and say exactly what I said in previous sermons, but in, in a roundabout way we will rehearse some of what we've already learned of what it means to stand fast in the Lord and to be of the same mind in the Lord and even rejoice in the Lord. Well, we'll just start here with verse number one, and it would be difficult to find a more personal verse in all of the Bible. There is this flood of emotion and affection and longing to help us see the depths of love that Paul has for these people. And if we hadn't already observed Paul's warmness and tenderness towards this church at Philippi through the course of the first three chapters, you might be tempted to think that he was trying too hard. This, what he says here is almost the equivalent of saying, honey, darling, sweetie pie, my dear, would you make me some coffee, please, my love? That's, that's essentially what Paul is saying here when he says, therefore, my brethren, my dearly beloved, longed for my joy, my crown, so stand fast in the Lord. Then he says it again, my dearly beloved. What Paul is saying is, you're my brethren. We're all part of the family of God. We're family together. You're my dearly beloved. I have great love for you. And he says that twice. You're my longed for. I want to see you. I want to be with you. I want to spend time with you. You're my joy and my crown that I have a sense of happiness and joy that comes from your relationship with Jesus and that you know him. You're even my crown. This is what he told the Thessalonians, that you're my joy and crown at the day of Jesus Christ, that you're my reward that's going to, to be my reward on judgment day, that all of this, he says to them, look, uh, you're my family. I love you so much. I long for you. You give me joy. You're my reward. He just lays it on them. 
There's this floodgate of words of affirmation and affectionate terms and love that comes spilling out of this man. And as sensitive and warm and gentle as all of these phrases are, sandwiched right in the middle of it is a command that is quite the opposite. There's a command that is firm and strong and resolute and unbendable. And he says towards the end of verse number one, so stand fast in the Lord. I want you to be resolute in the Lord. I want you to have spiritual stability. It's really what he's getting after here. So stand fast in the Lord. And this is not a new concept. If you would turn back to Philippians chapter number one, we'll see when we first introduced this idea was in verse number 27. This was the the beginning of Paul really personally applying the Philippian message was in Philippians 1 verse number 27. He comes out of his own testimony and he turns the spotlight on the Philippians and he starts in verse 27 and he says, only let your conversation or let your lifestyle or let your citizenship be as it becometh the gospel of Christ that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit. Whether I'm with you or not, I want to hear this testimony. I want to hear that you as a church are spiritually stable and that you continue, that you're rooted, planted, that you're built up in Jesus, that you stand fast in the Lord. This literally means to be at a post in war, to have your duty to be on guard and to be standing there resolute and to not be moved. We just had a group, 35 or so, go to London, and welcome back, London crew. We missed you last week. We're thankful to be able to loan you to London, but we're glad that you're back. But they, last week, took one tourist day in London, and they went to Buckingham Palace, and there at Buckingham Palace, you would have seen the Queen's Guard with big, you know, hat and, and red coats standing firm, not moving. It doesn't matter. You can, you know, wave. You can flick stuff. You, whatever. They're not going to move, right, because they're standing firm. They're resolute, and that's the idea of this text, is to stand firm in the Lord. And as I studied this, I was just amazed at how pervasive this theme is in the New Testament. That the New Testament is replete with scriptures that tell us this over and over and over. Paul wrote to the Colossians, and he told them, I want to behold your order in the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you receive Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk ye in him. I want to behold your steadfastness. I want to behold your spiritual stability. Continue in Jesus. Walk in him. Paul told the Galatians that they should have steadfastness of their faith in Christ, and they should stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made them free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Paul tells them, don't go back to Judaism. I want you to stand fast in who you are in Jesus. Remember what happened in Acts 11. It's early on in church history. There's a Jerusalem church. The churches are beginning to, to pop up all over, all over the place. And there's a church at Antioch. And they hear that this church at Antioch is flourishing. So they send Barnabas, Paul's travel companion later. They tell Barnabas from Jerusalem, go to Antioch and check them out. So Barnabas goes down, he checks them out, and he says, you guys are the real deal. Like there's something happening here. And Barnabas tells them in Acts chapter number 11 that with purpose of heart, they should cleave unto the Lord. 
With a resolute heart, don't let go of Jesus. Stand fast on this. What is Barnabas trying to exhort them in? He's trying to exhort them in spiritual stability. Peter had the same goal. He writes in 2 Peter that we should beware, lest being led away with the air of the wicked, we fall from our own steadfastness. Peter says, don't fall, stay firm. Over and over and over again, you get this idea in the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved My brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Everywhere you turn in the New Testament, you find this admonishment. Be spiritually stable. Stand fast. Hold firm. Exhibit spiritual stability. Remain resolute over and over and over again. But what's interesting to me about this verse, verse number one of Philippians 4, is there's one word that really just captivated my imagination, and it's a two-letter, very simple word that you can miss, and the word so. S-O. And that word so is the Greek word hutos, and it means in this manner or in this way. Paul is not saying, so just go do it. Like, you know, kid, just go clean up the room. It's, but Paul's not saying, well, just be spiritually stable. It's not trite. Paul is saying, in this manner, be spiritually stable. It's the same word that's used in the Lord's Prayer, that after this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, yada, yada, yada. That after this manner is hutos. It's hutos pray ye after this manner. So Paul is saying, after this manner, stand fast in the Lord. So after what manner? Like, what do you mean after this manner? There's debate as to whether Paul's saying what he just said, chapter 3, after that manner, or what he's going to say, chapter 4, after this manner. Personally, I think it's both. I think he's saying, I'm writing chapter 3, I'm writing chapter 4, I'm trying to give you instruction so that you will be spiritually stable. I wanted in chapter 3, I wanted to tell you to pursue Jesus and work at your relationship with him and press in and and pound yourself towards relationship with Jesus. I wanted to tell you to stay right there. I wanted to tell you to get some spiritual mentors and help you along. I wanted to tell you to stay away from those that would lead you astray from Jesus. I wanted to tell you to focus your, your gaze and your perspective on the eternal. And I'm telling you all that so you'll be spiritually stable. So you'll stand fast in the Lord. I'm about to tell you, chapter number four, to exhibit relational wellness, to rejoice in the Lord always, to have proper thinking and to think this way, to be generous, to be content with what God told you. I'm going to tell you all this so that you can be spiritually stable. And isn't this really what perplexes us sometimes in our Christian walk? That we want to, we have a desire to, at least if you know the Lord, you should, this desire to be spiritually stable, but so often we feel like it's a struggle. We feel like we're just kind of being blown around and we're this tumbleweed that's not spiritually stable. So this is an extremely important text for us to consider that we should take note, we should sit on the edge of our seat, we should perk our ears up a little bit to say, okay, Paul, what are you going to say? What are you going to tell me to allow me to be spiritually stable so that I can stand fast in the Lord? This is why Psalm 1, I believe, has captivated the attention of so many believers over the years. I don't think Psalm 1 is is one of the more famous psalms of the Psalter because it's just the first one. I think there's something there that really resonates with us. That when we read, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. 
And he shall be like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in season. His leaf will not wither. Whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. We read that and we think, I, wanna, I want that. I want to be a tree. I want to be planted. I want to be rooted. I want to be bearing fruit. I don't want to wither. I don't, I don't want to deteriorate. I want that. And then he says the ungodly, they're not so. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. They're just blown away. And we read that and we say, I don't want to be blown away. I want to be stable. I want to be rooted. So this is extremely important for us to, to tune into, to know how can I be spiritually stable? What are you telling me, Paul? I would even say this. I would say this is deeply important for our church as a whole. Courtney on the announcement video just said, welcome to Harvest, where it's our mission to make mature followers of Jesus. I hope that didn't fall on deaf ears. There's a big banner out in the lobby, making mature followers of Jesus. That's, that's why we're here. Like, that's our mission. That's our purpose, to make mature followers of Jesus. You could say it this way. Our mission is to have Christians be spiritually stable in Jesus. Amen. We don't just want you to learn salvation and get, you know, your get out of hell free card and then learn nothing and be nothing. We want you to be spiritual. I want you to be spiritually stable. We want you to grow and to be planted and to be rooted and to bring forth fruit and not to wither and to be spiritually stable. So this is deeply important for us. This is honestly, as I pray for our church family, this is my prayer. If you submit a prayer request via the website or via the connection card, we take that seriously and we pray over that. We will pray for your sickness. We will pray for your pet. We will pray for your traveling mercies. We will pray for whatever you tell us, gladly, willingly, unless you, you know, want us to pray against someone, like pray judgment on my neighbor. We won't do that. That's unbiblical. But you get there's limits. But you know, we pray for those. But you know, when I pray over the, the roster of our membership, or when I pray for you as, as a church family, you know what my prayers are most often? They're in regards to spiritual stability. It's, Lord, would you strengthen them with your might in the inner man or the inner woman? Lord, would you, would you put some spiritual rebar in our hearts and in our minds, and would you keep us firm? Lord, lead us not into temptation. Protect us physically. Protect us spiritually. Why? So that we can be spiritually stable. Lord, keep us close and clean. Help us to have that relationship that is right and that is whole. Lord, help us to abound in love and judgment so that we can approve the things that are excellent. Lord, give us spiritual discernment. Help us to be able to, to see through the fog and to know if this is right or wrong. Those, those are biblical prayers that Paul was oftentimes praying for those in the New Testament. Those are my prayers for us as a church family, and all of them lean into this idea of we want to be spiritually stable. We want to be rooted. We want to be grounded. As a footnote, I will say that I, I firmly believe with all my heart, I believe that our church is, is more stable than most that the individuals in this room are more spiritually stable than most churches have that, that make them up. That does not mean that we're perfect. It does not mean we have no growing to do. We have a lot of growing to do. But I don't want this to sound like a, a load of condemnation that, you know, we're about to topple over tomorrow. I, I don't mean that. But we do get the idea and the urgency of we want to stand fast. We want to be spiritually stable. So how might we do that? Well, Paul already told us, and he's going to tell us. In many ways, this is why he's rehearsing what he's already said. He's already told us all these things, but he's going to say them again. Verse 2. I need to turn to chapter 4. Verse 2. I beseech Yodius, 
I beseech, Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow. Say, who is Yodis? Who's Syntyche? Who's yoke fellow? We don't know exactly, but we'll learn a little bit about them. Help those women which labored with me in the gospel. Which women? Well, Yodis and Syntyche. Help those women. And they labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and with other my fellow laborers whose names are written in the book of life. You say, who are these people that we really struggle to pronounce their names? I don't know if that's how you say their names. That's just how I say it. You can say it a different way if you want. But who is Yodius and Syntyche? Who are these ladies? Well, we know that they're ladies that labored with Paul in the gospel. We know that their name is written in the book of life. He says that at the end of verse 3. That means these are saved ladies. These are, their name is on the roster of the redeemed. So we know they're saved. We know they, they were fellow laborers with Paul. They weren't spiritually apathetic. They actually were laboring in the gospel. They were trying to be a helper. They were trying to be productive Christians. We know that. We know they're members of the church of Philippi. We know from, from looking at just these verses that these ladies would be church-going, gospel-sowing, Paul-helping, genuinely saved ladies. That's a pretty good resume, right? Church-going, gospel-sowing, Paul-helping, genuinely saved, you might be prone to think, well, then they're immune to relational conflict, right? If they're church-going, gospel-sowing, Paul-helping, you know, really accurately saved, then they must be immunized to actually have relational woes. And what you find is that that is wrong. And we've said this previously, in many ways, the more fervent you are for the gospel, the more prone you are to rub up against somebody else. The, the idea that I'm zealous for Jesus and I take his word seriously precludes me from having relational conflict. That's a myth. In many ways, the more zealous and fervent that someone is for the gospel and for Jesus, the more serious someone takes doctrine, the, the more prone you are to actually come into conflict and collide with someone else because you do take it seriously. When you're not all spiritually apathetic, just on the spiritual lazy river floating around, you don't bump against very many people on the lazy river. But when you're, when you're active and you're going, then you can begin to bump and grind. And you find that these ladies are spiritual ladies. They, they love the Lord. They genuinely say they love Paul. They're his fellow laborers. But they have some conflict. What's the conflict? I don't know. He doesn't say. Maybe it was strictly just pure cattiness. Maybe there was something a bit more tangible. I don't know. But there was something here that had divided these ladies, and Paul names them by name and says, I want you to be of the same mind in the Lord. Flip back to chapter 2. I told you this was a, an echo. It was a reverberation. Chapter 2, look at verse 2. Maybe he had them in mind when he wrote chapter 2. I'm not sure. Chapter 2, verse 2. Fulfill you my joy that you what? Be like-minded. Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Verse number 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So Paul comes to them again and says, be of the same mind in the Lord. In case you missed the message, in case you wanted to dodge its implications, Yodius and Syntyche, I know that you've been fighting with each other. Let me just name you by name. That had to have been awkward, right? They're reading the letter aloud in the church. They're sitting there, and all of a sudden, up pops their name. That had to have been awkward. I figured I would follow Paul's example this morning, and I brought with me a list of all of the people who are experiencing relational conflict in our church. I'm just going to read them by name. I'm not really. I'm just kidding. That would have been awkward, right? 
My name would have been at the top because I certainly have my own relational conflict that I have to sort through at times. And to be clear, the rest of the sermon, I, I honestly have done my best to separate any personal situations from what I'm about to say. I've done my best to do that this morning. But if you've been married longer than two seconds, you know that this happens. We have relational conflict sometimes. We disagree on stuff. I talked about this last Sunday night. We, there are times where, where we're at an impasse, where we disagree. That was, that was unloving. Well, you're too fragile. And that happens. There are times where, where, we, where we butt heads with each other, where we lock horns with each other, where we disagree on stuff, where we even offend each other and we do wrong because we're human and we actually sin. And surprise, people sin and they sin against us sometimes. That happens in relationships. So what do we do? We try to have the mind of Christ and we try to make that whole and we try to make that right. You don't want to remain at loggerheads with somebody. You don't want to remain in conflict with someone. You want to make that right. And here's, here's the simple truth. If your mind is Christ-filled, it will be self-emptied. It's that simple. Have the mind of Christ, fill your mind with Christ, and it will be emptied of self. But all too often, our mind is not Christ-filled, so we don't have this space that's just a vacuum where nothing exists. Self gladly takes up residence and sits on the throne and says, I'll rule and reign a little bit. This is fine by me. And it's real tough to kick self off the throne and to put Christ on there. But Christ is, or Paul says, be of the same mind in the Lord. How do you know if you have the mind of Christ? Well, you could reverse engineer it. Is your mind filled with self? Are you selfish? If you are, then you don't have the mind of Christ. It's that simple. I want to give you, and I'll give these to you quickly, 10 marks of a selfish mind to help you assess yourself. A selfish mind is self-willed. You find Lucifer in Isaiah 14. What's he say five times? I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. What do you find Jesus does? Not my will, but thy will. Satan wants to ascend. Jesus chooses to descend. Satan has pride. Jesus has humility. You find that a selfish mind is self-willed. I want it to be about what I want. A selfish mind is self-seeking. It lives for its own pleasure, its own glory, its own purpose, constantly in self-promotion. I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, where Muhammad Ali formerly Cassius Clay, also known as the mouth of the South, arguably the greatest boxer of all time, grew up and lived and ran his mouth all the time. And he was a, a watershed moment kind of for, for sports figures to be the self-glorying, self-promoting, self-aggrandizing, self-seeking figure who could back it up in the boxing ring many times, but was extremely self-aggrandizing. And a selfish mind will do exactly that, that they will seek their own glory. You'll, you'll strut around thinking that you're big. Many Christians can strut sitting down, and it's, it's, a, it's a problem that enters into our lives. We're self-assertive when we're selfish. I, me, my. Every conversation comes right back to themselves. It's, it's one giant U-turn. Every conversation. You go away from them a little bit, you turn right back to them. Go away a little bit, you turn right back to them all the time. When you're selfish, that's the way that you live. That's the way that you talk. Selfish people are self-indulgent, motivated by selfish desire rather than by principle. We talked about this last week. Those whose, whose God is their belly, who want their selfish desires to rule, who want their lust to rule, those who want to be motivated and driven by the pride of life. A selfish mind is self-pitying. 
Ask a selfish person how they're doing. You will get so far from, well, better than I deserve. You won't get that. You'll get an organ recital. Woe is me. It's so tough. Life probably is tough. I'm not saying it's not. But a selfish person turns inward, inward, inward all the time. A selfish person is even self-conscious. Those that are selfish, you'll find this about them. They are very easily wounded. And when they're wounded, they enjoy pouting. If you're easily wounded and you enjoy to pout and to sour, let that be a note to you that you do not have the mind of Christ. You have a a selfish mindset that is not right. A selfish person is even self-deprecating. And this can catch you by surprise, but it's the, oh, I'm too awful. I don't deserve it. I, I, I don't, I, I haven't earned it. What is that? That is reverse engineering pride and selfishness. I don't deserve it means I have not earned it and I do not want to take it until I feel that I have earned it and therefore I deserve it and then I'll take it. That's exactly what that is. And all it is, hidden beneath all the layers, it sounds a little bit humble, but hidden beneath it all is a selfish, prideful heart and motive that's being self-deprecating. Selfish person is self-exalting. Well, at least I'm not proud. You know, that's a selfish person. It's someone that, that looks at themselves and lifts themselves up. A selfish person is self-justifying. Answer this question. Does the apology stick in your throat? If it does it's likely that you're self-justified. There's always a reason. There's always a rationale. You can always explain it away. Why you didn't, why you didn't intend, why you didn't, and it wasn't actually your fault. So therefore, I never have to apologize because you can self-justify everything that you do. I understand that many times it's difficult to say, I'm sorry, but the only reason it's difficult is because you don't have the mind of Christ and you don't have humility. You don't have tenderness. You don't have kindness that you're exhibiting. You're exhibiting pride and selfishness. And we all deal with this. I, man, I dealt with this just a week or so ago with my son. He's four. We're sitting at the dinner table. My wife had just slipped upstairs. And we're about to start dinner. We're about to pray. That's our habit. Hey, Brennan, why don't you pray for us? Well, what about mommy? Brennan, it's, mommy's doing her own thing. Why don't you pray for us? Well, what about Willow? Brennan, just, do you, just pray for us. I'm, you know, I'm hungry. I'm ready to eat. The food's sitting there. Pray for us. Well, what about Cruz? And it, it triggered. It, Brennan, pray for us. I was frustrated, I was angry, I didn't yell real loud, but it was, it was there. And all of a sudden, his little spirit was wounded, and he started to shrivel back up in his shell. He wasn't crying, but, but he shriveled back up a bit, and all of a sudden, I realized that was wrong. And I realized I need to apologize to my four-year-old. He doesn't know a lot, but he at least knows enough that daddy was wrong and daddy was mean in that moment, I need to apologize. It's not entirely easy to apologize to a four-year-old. But that's what the situation called for. And that's not a, it would pat me on the back. I was great. I apologize. I did apologize to him, but it, was, it, was, it wasn't easy. I wanted to self-justify. It had been a long day. This, whatever. When, when you're selfish, it sticks in your throat. It won't come out. A selfish person is self-confident. Peter was extremely self-confident. I won't deny you, Jesus. No way. Won't deny you. Nope. Nope. Not a chance. How'd that turn out? Peter was extremely confident in himself. There is a beautiful scriptural confidence, but it's in the Lord. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I understand I need his strength. I understand I need him. I can only do it in Jesus. I can't do it in myself. I don't have self-confidence. I have confidence I can do it, but it's only through Jesus. That's the confidence that we need. So understand that 
If you go through life with a selfish mind, it is going to rob you of the mind of Christ and it will ruin relational harmony. It will ruin you getting along with other people. It will ruin you actually living a spiritual, stable life. This is designed to help you see what's spiritually stable. A spiritually stable life is that that exhibits the mind of Christ and lives in relational harmony with other people. And it even robs the world of your testimony. This is why Paul could say, flip back over to two. I know I'm going back and forth, back and forth, but Philippians 2 verse 14. We already preached about this, but we'll rehearse it. Do all things without murmuring and disputing. Don't grumble, don't argue. It's simple. Don't grumble, don't argue. Why? Well, verse 15, that you may be blameless and harmless as sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You want to shine in darkness? You want the world to see something different? You want them who they're experiencing all of their relational conflict? They don't even have the mind of Christ to help them navigate through all this. So they're up in arms. They're fighting against each other. They're climbing the ladder. They're trying to, to trump everybody else. They're fighting. The world is. And they need to see something different amongst Christians. That Christians stand up and say, look, we get along and we love each other and we forgive each other and we're kind. And there's something different here. And Paul says, so don't grumble and don't argue with each other so that you can shine like lights in the world so they can see that there's something different about you. That you rob, you rob yourself of your own testimony and you rob the glory of the Lord in the name of Jesus being proclaimed because you can't get along with people. So Paul says, you want to be spiritually stable? Have the mind of the Lord. These two ladies get along with each other. Don't fight with each other. And inside of, okay, we should have Christians should have the mind of Christ even towards non-Christians, but even more so a Christian to another Christian. Inside of the Christian community, there should be this, this ethos of love and forgiveness and humility and wanting to have the mind of Christ. That should be what we do, but all too often, Someone offends our sensibilities or we offend someone else's sensibilities and let the war begin. They ticked me off. So now am I going to exhibit the mind of Christ? Am I going to be humble, forgiving, put them first, kind, loving, meek? Am I going to do that? No, I'm going to live selfishly. You got mad at me? Watch me get even more mad at you. You think you can breathe fire? I'm a raging volcano. I will pour my lava on you. And put your foot down? I will put both my feet down. Let's go. You want, you want to enlist people on your little team? You told them, you got them to support you, now they got your back? See, I get, I'll get my tribe, see how many troops I can enlist, see who I get on my team. We'll wage war, just batten down the hatches, dig the trenches, let the relational siege begin. Let's, let's go, let's fight. I'm in this for the long haul. That, if we're not careful, and I don't think that's typical of, of our church. I'll just leave it at our church. I don't think that's typical. But if we're not careful, that, be, that can become what happens. And all of a sudden, the mind of Christ is lost. And the relational wellness is lost. And everyone loses. You get bitter and resentful. And that root of bitterness springs up and it troubles you. They get angry and malicious, and they lose. The world around sees Christians that are infighting and catty and, and don't get along with each other, and they say, why in the world would I want that? And the testimony of Jesus loses. The church 
Instead of having people that are exhibiting relational wellness and are focused on what really matters and have their perspective on eternity and are trying to share the gospel with the world around them, instead of having members of a church that have that, that mind and that service, instead they're turned inward and they're fighting with each other and the church is robbed of people actually living for the cause of Christ and the church loses. Everybody loses because the mind of Christ is not imbibed and then lived out. Say, what's the solution? The solution is simple. Have the mind of Christ. Wave the white flag. Follow after the things which make for peace. Let the peace of God rule your heart. Stop assuming ill motives on everything that they do. Demonstrate grace. Demonstrate forgiveness. Reflect Jesus. That's what we're supposed to do because we are in the Lord. You understand that being a Christian, having a relationship with another Christian should automatically give you an extreme advantage on relational harmony. Sometimes it's the opposite, but that's not the way it's supposed to be. Let me remind you of one more verse. You're already probably there. Philippians 2, look at verse 1. This is where Paul began his section on relational wellness and having the mind of Christ, and he began it with I didn't understand it until I studied it a few weeks ago. It's just so beautiful. I can't get over it. If there be any consolation in Christ, if there be any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded. You know what the condition was for being like-minded? It was, do you know the comfort of Jesus? Do you know the love of God? Do you know the fellowship of the Spirit, do you have any affection for other Christian brethren? Like, do you have the foggiest idea of what that means? Does that ring a bell at all? If you're saved, it should. You should be able to relate with that. And Paul is saying, look, do you know his comfort? Do you know his love? Do you know his fellowship? Do you, do you have any affection for me either than be like-minded? You have a common denominator. You already have a leg up on the competition. You should be able to do this because you know him. You know his mind because you felt his mind towards you. They just sang it a little bit ago. We were enemies and now we're seated at his table. If you have an enemy, seat them at your table. That's what God did for you, so you do it for somebody else. Make it right, exhibit forgiveness, exhibit graciousness, and don't live in relational tension with everyone. Joe Miller reminded me this week of Psalm 133. Peaked in my office and I was studying. We were talking and he reminded me of this verse. I said, Joe, that, I love that. I'm going to tell the church that. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's profitable and it's fun when you're serving the team together. It's good and it's pleasant to dwell together in unity and to strive for the same cause. I didn't finish the sermon in the first service. I'm not going to have time to finish it in this one. That's fine. But we'll, I'll give you one more thought. Verse 3. He tells these ladies to get along, but then he gives us a verse that I'm extremely thankful for. I entreat thee also, true yoke, true yoke fellow. You say, who is the true yoke fellow? Well, frankly, we have no idea. I've read a lot of pages on speculation on who the yoke fellow is, but when it's all said and done, we just don't know. This is a nickname for somebody that we're not sure. But Paul enlists the help of someone else, this guy. And he says, true yoke fellow, 
help those women which labor with me in the gospel. Look, help Yodius and Syntyche. Get alongside them and help them with their relational friction. And it's not just them that labor with me in the gospel. Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers, and their names are written in the book of life. The lesson to be learned here is that at times, you do need a third party to help resolve the conflict. Not all the time, and frankly, rarely. This should not be the norm. Well, he didn't squeeze the toothpaste the right way, so I'm going to get a mediator. You, know, you, don't need, you don't need one for that. Just get over it. So you don't need that often, but there are legitimate times here in Scripture. There's legitimate time where Paul says, look, you need the help of a mediator. And this passage demonstrates that at times arbitration is necessary and you need someone to come a long way and, and to adjudicate the matter. And, and an even-handed, level-headed mediator at times can go a long way in helping you resolve conflict in your marriage, helping you resolve conflict amongst your family, helping you resolve conflict amongst another church member. At times you need that. At times you, you just can't get there on your own. And Paul says, look, I want them to get along, but hey, I want you, buddy, go, go help them out and get alongside them and be a third party here. This is exactly what perplexed Paul so much when he wrote to the Corinthians. There was a lot that perplexed him, actually, because the Corinthians were a train smash for a while. But in chapter 6, specifically, Paul was beside himself. He was incredulous that there were people in the church at Corinth that were disputing and were arguing and they couldn't get it figured out and they went to the secular judicial system and said, will you, will you mediate this? And Paul, I, you can read the whole chapter on your own. I'll just read you verse number five where Paul says about that matter, I speak to your shame. Is it so that there's not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to, ju to judge between his brethren. Paul says, are you kidding me? You got to go to Judge Judy? You can't find someone with some spiritual discernment and someone with some wisdom in your church to be able to help you figure this out? You got to run to someone that doesn't know Jesus and doesn't have the mind of Christ, that has a secular mindset to help you figure out who should get this, who shouldn't get that. Mom, mom passed away and so now we're fighting with you. You have to go to someone to mediate that? Are you kidding me? Like you can't be spiritually minded enough to find someone to help you? Like he was ticked at them. And he's, he's saying here in Philippians 4, the same thing, look, hey, here's someone, have them help. Have them adjudicate, have them mediate, have them, have them arbitrate this matter. Have him come alongside of you. Paul is, is wanting them to do everything in their power to exhibit relational wellness. Can I tell you, if, if you have an issue with someone in church, out of church, I don't care, Try to resolve it yourself, but if you can't resolve it, it, it's okay. Swallow your pride a little bit. It's okay to ask for help at times. If your marriage needs counseling, get some counseling. Don't, don't wallow in the relational friction that you can't figure out. Try to get some help. You're going to have to work at it. It doesn't mean that a counselor is a, is a solve-all, that he has a little magic wand of pixie dust for you, but he may be able to come along and help you. She may be able to come along and help you. Find someone spiritually minded. Find someone to help you arbitrate if, if you need to go that far. Supposed to be, be spiritually stable. Stand fast in the Lord. Be spiritually stable. How? How might I do this? Well, one of the ways is relational harmony. Having the mind of Christ. 
parents, you want to know if that young person will be a good influence on your young person? On if you should let them hang out, if you should let them be friends? One of the questions to ask yourself is, does that 16-year-old have turmoil surrounding all of their relationships? Does that 16-year-old honor mom and dad and get along with them? Does that 16-year-old constantly fight with their other siblings? Does that 16-year-old constantly exhibit catty behavior towards other people? Don't let your young person hang around them. They're not spiritually stable. If you want to, as, as, a, as a single, you want to look for someone to marry, ask yourself this question, do they have right relationships with those that are around them? If they can't get along with your in-laws and they can't get along with their own parents and they can't get along with everybody, that's a red flag that there's something unstable there. You, you want to ask yourself, am I spiritually stable? Am I rooted? This isn't the only question to ask yourself, but this is one of them. Am I spiritually stable? Well, are you locking horns with other people constantly? Or are you actually exhibiting relational wellness in, in your relationships? Because when you have the mind of Christ and you have humility and forgiveness and graciousness, it's very difficult to, to continue to clash with people. It's very difficult. Paul says, I want you stand fast in the Lord. Stand fast in the Lord. So stand fast. Here's how, in this manner. What manner? Have the mind of Christ. Get along. Get along. Have the mind of Christ. Navigate through your relationships. Dishing out peace and grace and forgiveness and do it like Jesus did. He who was God humbled himself all the way down and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That's a whole lot of humility. That's a whole lot of serving. He took us who were enemies and did not deserve forgiveness and he seated us at the table. He pursued us and he gave us right standing with God and he suffered for us. Take that and bide that. Tell yourself that story over and over again and live it out day to day in the relationships that you have.